Got a little green and blue. Yeah, come on now. It's pastor love. Come on, I, I can't wear a jersey in the pulpit. My goodness. <laughs> oh. Seahawks fans. Yeah. I think I, I, I saw a special on this guy. I think he spends 400 bucks at every game to get painted. He goes to some person who's a professional body painter who paints him all up like that. Yeah, that's, that's hardcore fandom. Hardcore. I, I'm thankful all of you left your hair normal or, or absent, as the case may be. It's not hard to know who the serious Hawks fans are. Uh, and not hard to know at the game or the Super Bowl or at the first or at the first Baptist Church. <laughs> In the beginning of First Corinthians six, uh, as we've been looking at it, God is telling us a specific truth, and He's going to tell us a different truth, but they're connected. We'll connect them back toward the end of this message today, but. He's been telling us that we need to settle our disputes in the church, not in the secular court. And, and really what God would tell us in the whole of the New Testament is we should be living in peace. We should not be getting to the point of disputes with fellow Christians. But we need to be taking care of things amongst brothers and sisters here. And then he goes on and tells them another truth that's connected to it. He's been making this difference all along about how unbelievers live and how believers live. And then he says these things in uh, verse 9 through 11. Uh, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God." The part, the, the, the truth that this passage is going to share with us in, in relation to the earlier passage is this. Your salvation should be easily visible on your life. I could put it this way. Your salvation should be just as visible as your hawk's pride. Obviously in a different way. All, I, all we have to do to uh, show our support for the Seahawks is, is uh, buy the mug or the t-shirt, throw it on, and next week we could throw on a different jersey if we wanted to. And that's kind of what was going on with the Christians in Corinth. They kind of acted like Christians sometimes and not like Christians other times. And Paul says, now listen here. There's, an, there's something really important going on with how you conduct your life and, and that is, it, it's the, it has to do with the importance of salvation. He, he uses a phrase here that we don't commonly use in our church when he says this, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, we tend to say it more like this, don't you know that unbelievers won't go to heaven? But he uses this in a, in a very special way that, that needs to instruct us today. 
Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see, they've been acting like unrighteous people. And so he turns it a little bit and says, now, you understand, don't you, that some people are going to make it to heaven and some people aren't. And he's going to challenge them about which side they're on. In order to understand this, though, we we need to take a a minute on this phrase, inherit the kingdom of God. The word kingdom is used several ways in the scripture. A couple of weeks ago, we used this little diagram to help you understand the use of the word kingdom. If we start back here at the cross of Christ, and here we are about 1900 years later, we know that the next event on God's timetable is an event called the rapture when he takes all the Christians off the planet and then starts into a time period called the tribulation where there's seven years of God pouring out wrath on mankind But there's a purpose to it. It's not just God punishing people. It's God getting his people, Israel, to turn around and to come to him. And there'll be a wholesale uh, revival of, of Jewish people during those seven years. At the end of that time, we come into a period that we usually refer to as the millennium, but we could just as easily refer to it as the kingdom. The literal kingdom of God on earth with Christ ruling from the throne in Jerusalem. It's important to start here in our understanding of the word kingdom because the word kingdom gets used a lot in popular Christianity, but it rarely gets used this way. And this is the focal point of the word kingdom for God in the Bible. In the Old Testament, this kingdom was prophesied Jesus talked about this kingdom while he was on earth, and it is coming a time when Christ will literally sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, ruling the world, and as we learned in past weeks, we will be helping him rule the world. Jesus spoke about this thousand-year kingdom himself in Luke 22. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's important to start here so that we understand what I would call the most specific and technical use of the word kingdom in the Bible. And so when when I use the word kingdom, if I use it in preaching, that's what I'm going to be thinking of first and foremost. And that's what we should be thinking of first and foremost as well. But the term kingdom is also used to refer to the realm of God's rule over the whole earth that exists now and will exist in greater measure in the future as well. God allows things to happen now that he won't allow to happen in the future. Jesus used the word kingdom both in in reference to the kingdom on earth and the kingdom of of heaven and going to heaven, when he spoke in John chapter three, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he was speaking, first of all, primarily of that specific kingdom, because he was talking to a Jewish man who knew the Old Testament, and that's what he was looking for. He was looking toward it, and, and he came to Jesus, And he said, you're a great rabbi, and Jesus right off the bat says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But later in that same conversation, he said this, whoever God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not 
perish but have everlasting life. And so we understand from this that there is a, there is a, a fluidness to the use of the word kingdom. Sometimes it refers specifically to that thousand years. Sometimes it refers to eternity with God in heaven. Jesus is speaking of of the kingdom in both ways. Paul connected this idea of kingdom and of being born again and of heaven in this verse from Colossians. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light as he delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, kingdom of the son of his love. And so we understand that the word kingdom of God, to inherit the kingdom of God, means having a future existence in heaven, of ruling the world with Christ, and being connected to God here and now. It means everything that a Christian is and will be. And as we come back to 1 Corinthians 6, we read this phrase again now. Do you not know that if you are unrighteous, you will not inherit the kingdom of God? Your entrance into and participation in the kingdom of God, whether that is the here and now, the heaven later, the the rule with Christ and the kingdom on earth, that is all contingent upon your relationship to God. To be unfit for the kingdom brings eternal punishment. For this you know that no fornicator or unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. That wrath of God is is further identified here. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. What is on the line here is your eternal future and your life now. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and saying, you've been living in an ungodly way. Now, don't you know what's at stake here? If you truly are an ungodly person, you're on your way to an eternal hell. Because you have to be a godly person to be on your way to heaven. And what he says next is the thing that needs to challenge us most. What is the evidence of our genuine salvation? And he gives it both positively and negatively. and And he starts by saying this, real faith causes the believer to remove sin. Real faith causes the believer to remove sin. And just to make sure his hearers know what sin is, he gives a representative list. He doesn't give an exhaustive list. He doesn't give a list that says, now these sins will send you to hell, but there are other sins that won't send you to hell. He gives a list of sins, and he says, where are you at in your life? Are these things being put away, or are they an active part of your life? And the list is... is uh, 
is a tough list. Starts right off with fornication, sexual immorality in general, and by unmarried persons in particular. The word fornication is the broadest word in the Bible, in the New Testament, for sexual sin. I went to a pastor's meeting this week, and uh, we have a fellowship of churches in the Northwest, so I've known these guys for years. I've been in the ministry 37 years. I've known some of them that long. So we, we get together three times a year at different things, and we, how you doing, what's going on? And I said, hey, what's going on with so-and-so? I, I talked to a, a certain pastor who's had some interaction with the, this pastor brother, and I knew that he and his wife had had some problems. And I don't know the nature of it, and I didn't need to, but I just wondered what the current status was. And he said, oh, they're, they're in the process of getting a divorce, and uh, this, past, this former pastor has an ad out on a website where you find partners to have sex with. And I'm going, really? I mean, this was a guy who was an active part, uh, he, was a, he, was a, he seemed to be a good pastor, had good ministry. And you know, what was the most disconcerting was he had a way to explain why this was okay. He had some justification for it. I can't remember it exactly. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, friends, if you're not married, it's fornication. We ought to just use the word fornication. We shouldn't say they're having an affair. We shouldn't say they're living together. We shouldn't say it's pornography. We should say they're having fornication. They are a fornicator. It's easy to make excuses for sin But what's on the line here is eternity. And the second sin is one that we we don't get that much of. Uh, We don't don't really resonate with it in our culture in many ways. But idolatry, the worship of any false god or religious system. Now, I'm sure that the Apostle Paul included that line because, and I'm sure it's included, if you notice, look in your Bible, it's in between Two forms of sexual sin, fornication, idolatry, and then adultery. You think, well, that doesn't seem to be lo- to flow logically at all. It did in Corinth. Because in Corinth, they had the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of love in the Greek mythology. How do you worship the goddess of love? You go to the temple, and you hire a prostitute, and you have sexual relations, and that's how you worship the goddess Aphrodite. These people came out of that culture. And so when the, when, when the Apostle Paul says, sex outside of marriage is wrong, and then he goes on to say, worshiping an idol is a sin, he's probably bringing these two things together in a very uh, specific and unholy way. But certainly idol worship is broad enough for us to understand that anything we would try to add to Jesus Christ in our life, Uh, I heard a missionary years ago talk about a culture in which they had a God shelf. And they'd have two or three or four gods. And he said, they're happy to add Jesus to the God shelf. But they're not going to take the others off the God shelf. And with idolatry, the question you have to ask yourself is, how many gods are on my shelf? It needs to be just Jesus Christ alone. And the next one on the list, adultery doesn't need much explanation. It's fornication by married people. It doesn't matter how you might 
explain your sin. It's still fornication. And in fact, I think the reason that adultery is listed separate from fornication is because it's a double sin. Do you realize that when you commit adultery as a Christian, first of all, you're tearing the one flesh relationship. Malachi chapter uh, 3 makes that clear. It talks about the tearing of the marriage relationship and you're committing fornication. If you aren't married, it's fornication. The next two get worse. The word homosexuality, um, if you have a New American Standard Bible, it translates it effeminate. The NIV translates it male prostitute. It may refer to the male prostitutes in Corinth, but the actual literal meaning of the word is the word soft, and it's used always in this context of homosexuality. And then the next word, sodomy, is really the word homosexual. And these two words together are two demonstrations of homosexuality. And without being too graphic, it's this, those who take the feminine role and those who take the masculine role within what we would call homosexual behavior. And I know about now you're thinking, gee, Pastor Dave, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I get that. How do you think I feel standing up here talking about this? The truth of God's word is eternity is on the line. And if you are allowing yourself to be enslaved to sin and not believing in Christ, what's ahead is going to be worse than what's here now. Now, the list gets nicer when it goes to stealing taking what doesn't belong to you, you think, well, that's not nearly as bad as those other things on that list. And it gets even nicer yet when it talks about coveting. You know, you know, yeah, I want stuff that other people have. That's not that bad. Do you know what's in the same list with those other things? Isn't that incredible? God wrote this list. This isn't the whole list of sins. You know, in the New Testament, there are a, there are a number of places where we get a list like this, a list, a list, a list. And no two of them are the same. Two or three of them are similar. But you could make a pretty long list of the things God specifically says is wrong. But he chose these items to put on this list for the Corinthians. And so you need to take note of the fact that this is a sin just like those. And then he names one that our society doesn't agree with at all. We call it alcoholism. And we like to make it into an illness. But drinking alcohol till you're drunk, and I don't believe that's till you're falling down drunk. I believe the scripture would define it as till you are starting to be controlled. That's the key in Ephesians 5.18, what's controlling you. This is not... Well, I, just, I would like to use the words of John Phillips in his commentary, I think he said that the most poetic way it could possibly, could possibly be said. The world uses the euphemism alcoholic and excuses their behavior by calling alcoholism a disease. The Bible calls it a sin and holds those guilty of it responsible for their behavior. God does not send people to hell for a disease. If God put that in this list, and the beginning of this list says the unrighteous, as characterized by these sins, the unrighteous will not go to heaven, then God is saying this is a sin that can be so enslaving that it keeps you from Christ and sends you to hell. 
Wow. But there's, there's two more. To speak evil of someone on purpose. Could, you know, gossip fits into this. Um, any kind of repeating of things that shouldn't be repeated or maliciously making things up or having an innuendo, well, I don't know, I saw, I see, whatever. <sighs> to speak evil. You know, that obviously in this list, we go, well, that's not that bad. Listen to what God says in Proverbs. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't want to be on the opposite side of God's line in the sand when his hatred is being displayed. I want to be on God's side. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Those are some things that God hates. I know full well that you hate some of this stuff. God hates this stuff too. Last one on the list is extortion. It means to swindle or, I just put it this way, to steal in a crafty way. You know, the thief, he, he, as the scripture says, the thief breaks through and steals. In other words, we call it breaking and entering. You know, smash and grab, whatever. He just runs up and puts a gun in your face and steals your stuff. The swindler kind of comes in from behind. I, uh, I had a, uh, a friend who used to be an assistant district attorney for King County, and his first assignment in the district attorney's office was fraud. And he said one of the saddest things I've ever heard, the majority of the fraud cases I prosecute are church people defrauding other church people. Yeah. Now, here, you really got to get the big point here and the big picture. Not, these, these, these issues of sin are important, but there's a big picture going on. Why does Paul emphasize the awareness of sin in, regarding to, in regard to determining your spiritual condition? See, what Paul is saying is, take a look at your life. Are you saved or not? Our typical response to that as Christians is we say, have you believed in Christ as your Savior? You say, yep, I prayed that prayer. I bowed my knee to Jesus. The Apostle Paul doesn't say that. You know what he says? He says, what's your life look like? Are you a believer in Christ? He says, what's your life look like? Don't you know that the unrighteous are not headed for the kingdom of God? It falls in line with, with what James says here. What use it is, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? In other words, say, oh yes, I believe in Jesus. But we look at your life, and you're not wearing the God jersey. You're wearing the ungodly jersey. If your faith in Christ doesn't cause you to stop sinning as a way of life, you may not have real salvation. Now, I said may because I, I'm not judging your life or your heart. That's God's business and your business. That's what the scripture in 1 Corinthians 11 says. You should examine yourself. 
2 Corinthians 13, 5, you should examine yourself. That's the point today, for you to examine yourself, for you to know yourself. If your faith in Christ doesn't cause you to stop sinning as a way of life, you may not have real salvation. John said it this way, blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates to the city. Here's an excellent example of this truth from the time of Christ with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. (laughs) But he wanted to see Jesus. He said, come to my house for dinner. And Jesus went to his house for dinner. And after they talked, here's what Zacchaeus said. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. That was the Old Testament standard for stealing. You didn't go to jail. You paid back four times what you stole. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to his house. Now, was Jesus teaching that The gate of heaven is open for those who do enough good works. No, but he was saying this. Real faith results in visible godliness. See, that's what Paul was talking about to the Corinthians. He's saying, as I look at you, you don't look like real Christians because of this behavior and this behavior and this behavior and this behavior. And so now he's stepping back to remind them, listen, Real faith results in visible godliness. You know that Jesus was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides or dwells or lives in Christ does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness. This word practice is talking about lifestyle, about ongoing, about daily. He who practices righteousness just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, the seed of Christ, remains in him, and he cannot sin. Because he's been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. The person who has genuinely believed in Christ as Savior is known by his or her godly behavior. Again, this is not to to create a works kind of salvation, but it is to say true faith in the Son of God who died for you brings change. And in fact, that's what Paul's going to say. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He gives this whole list of sin. He says, I hope this is not you because these are the people going to, to hell. Verse 11, and such were some of you. I think he gave that specific list of sins because every single one of them was represented by people who were in the church. He said they used to be this way. 
You used to be a fornicator. You used to be an adulterer. You used to be a homosexual. You used to be a drunkard, etc., etc. That's how you used to be. But what happened to you? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. The impact of genuine salvation begins with washing. When we're washed, we're cleansed from the dirt of sin. He uses three different words that all talk about salvation from different perspectives. That washing is summarized here in Revelation 1. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. When we have the Lord's Supper, we we drink this grape juice to remember the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that takes away our sin. Um, Might even be appropriate to say it is the, the death that came by the blood of Christ. He paid for our sins. His death was the sacrifice and his blood washes us. The old hymn, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's right. When I was a boy, I had a a friend who lived on a farm. We lived in eastern Washington at the time. And and, uh, this was my my best buddy at church. And they lived on a farm. And I would go out to the farm and play with with him. And he had a cattle farm, beef beef farm. And and, uh, they would take all the manure from their corral, wherever they kept, whatever you want to call it, where they kept the cows, and pile it up. And they just kept piling it up, and it kind of, kind of evaporates, kind of degrades, you know, whatever a big pile of manure does, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm probably 10 years old, I don't know, we're running around, running around, and, and this, this kid ran up on top of this pile of manure, and I ran up there with him, right about up to the middle when I went down to this... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, I don't want to die in a pile of manure. <laughs> and I tried my best to get out. But it's, it's like quicksand, you know. You put one down, you put one down, you're like this. And his dad had to come with a piece of wood or something and kind of pull me out of there. I couldn't get myself out of that pile of manure. And that's this wonderful truth that Jesus washes us with his blood. You cannot save yourself. We want to save ourselves because we're proud. We want to show up on heaven's door and say, I did this! But it's not going to happen. Because we're dirty to begin with and every act of righteousness is rejected by God until we say, oh, please wash me. That cleansing takes place when we confess our sin or we admit that we are sinful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This verse applies to salvation and also to our daily walk with the Lord. If you've never given your heart to the Lord or maybe you made some statement of faith when you were a child but now in looking at this list and thinking about your life you're you're thinking man I, I think I'm wearing the jersey of sin then what God wants from you is for you to admit it to say I'm a sinner I cannot save myself I need you to wash me because you're the only savior 
When we do that, we are cleansed. And that's what had happened to these these people in Corinth. They had believed and they had been cleansed, but not only cleansed, they had been sanctified. That's a big word we don't use every day, but it means to have a new position, to be set apart for something special. Um, You know, uh, those of you who are really Seahawks fans, you would never take that jersey and put it in the mud, right? That would be a desecration. Or the 12 flag. You never take the 12 flag and, and drop it through the mud. Or, or you know, I'm being, I'm being silly. But it's special. You know what? You're special now. If Christ washed your sin away, you are now special to God. The word literally means to be set apart to him. You belong to God. You're God's person. And incumbent upon that is to act the way God wants you to act because you're his person. 1 Peter 1 says, as he who called you, that's God, is holy, you should also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. The basis of God calling us to be holy is his own character. He saved you, he brought you to himself, he empowered you with Christ, now you act like him. Don't act like this terrible list in 1 Corinthians 6. Colin Sutton is in the army in Hawaii. Tough duty. Yeah. Somebody's got, somebody's got to protect our favorite vacation spot, right? <laughs> Do you know that when you join the army, you military people, you tell me if I'm wrong, the government has the right to your body. And, and they even can tell you what you can and cannot, you know, like tattoos and things like that. They own you. And I know they turn a blind eye to some things and so on, but legally, you're theirs. He's going to get orders at some point. Did he get them yet? He's waiting for orders to be deployed somewhere with a a group of guys doing something. Lord willing, it'll be protecting our freedom. (laughs) And when, when he gets those orders, is he going to walk up to that CO and say, excuse me, sir, I think I'd like to do something different. I'd like to have, I'd like to stay right here on the beach in Hawaii for the rest of my tour. Would that be okay? Well, that'd be just fine, private son. We have a special place on the beach. It's called the Brig. (laughs) He is not his own man anymore. He is sanctified to the army. When you accept Christ as your Savior, you are sanctified. You're set apart to God's work. You do what God wants you to do. You have the position of being with God, and you have the responsibility of living for God. The third thing Paul said about them is they were justified. We use the word justified. You know, what's the justification for what you just did? Why is it okay what you just did? The meaning of Justification theologically is spelled out for us. It means basically to be declared righteous. We see it here in Romans 4. But to the person who does not try to earn their salvation, but believes on Christ who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God applies righteousness apart from works, 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, who are washed, whose sins are covered. When you believe in Christ, God applies the righteousness of Christ to you and he declares you to be righteous. You don't earn righteousness. You don't do a bunch of things so that he says, okay, now you're good enough. He says, you've believed in me. I've used the blood of Christ to wash you clean. And now I'm putting you into the righteousness of Christ. And that's why 1 John says, those who are in Christ can't sin. We have the righteousness of Christ in us. Now, none of the apostles who wrote the scripture, nor am I, trying to tell you that as you walk through your life, you will never do anything wrong. All of these commands are given in a present tense, which indicates an ongoing kind of active lifestyle choice. When you get up and leave here and go home and, and you watch that football game and the New England Patriots do something good and you're tempted to express yourself, <laughs> if you give in to that temptation, that's a sin. But if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit's going to go, that's not right. And if you're in Christ, you're going to say, yes, Lord, that's wrong. And if you're really in Christ, you're going to go Matthew 5 all over the New England Patriots. <laughs> say, love your enemies. Do good to them who seek your harm. <laughs> None of us lives a perfect life, but the question is, what is your lifestyle? What do people see on your life? And I'm not saying that other people get to judge you. I'm just saying, what is that's visible? If you were in the parade, would you have this Hawks jersey on or somebody else's jersey? If you're in the parade of Christians, do they look at you and go, you look like a Christian? The only way that happens is if you practice the washing, the sanctifying, and the justifying. If you live in it actively, And so that's the big point that Paul's getting to, and I've called this the relevance of genuine salvation, and I mean relevant to the discussion in Corinthians. Salvation is eminently relevant to everything. These people were taking their brothers to court. Look at verse eight. Apparently, to cheat them. He says, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. It would appear that they were using the legal process to get gain for themselves, whether it was legal or not, the question would be, was it moral before God? And so they were not being upfront, they were not being fair, whatever it was. They were taking brothers to court to cheat them. And they didn't want to deal with things in-house in the church because they didn't want others to know how they were sinning. And by the end of this book, we're going to know that all of these sins on this list were things that were going on in the church to one degree or another. And so Paul asks them to make a choice. He says, are you sinners on your way to hell, or are you Christians who need to stop sinning? That's the choice he's asking them to make. God's challenge is summarized here in in Titus 2, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. What does it teach us? 
What does this free, gracious salvation teach us? That we should deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify, cleanse for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Are you sinners on your way to hell or are you Christians who need to stop sinning? This church prided itself on its churchiness. By the time we get to the end of the book, you'll understand that there were all kinds of things going on that, that went on in the first century in churches that were okay, they were good, and they prided themselves. Hey, all this stuff's going on. We got a big ministry. It's highly developed. If you'd ask them, do you love Jesus? They'd say, yes, I love Jesus. And yet Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, do you have warm fuzzies for me? He said, do you keep my commandments? And John, the apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, put it this way. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we're liars. And we don't practice the truth. Which is it, saint or sinner? You can't have it both ways. That's the parade last year after the Super Bowl. I have a friend who's a season ticket holder, and uh, he is at the game today. I'm sure I'll be able to pick him out because he'll have a Seahawks jersey on. I have no doubt that he'll be wearing the blue and green today. He, he, oh, he is a big-time Seahawks fan. I imagine it'll be pretty easy to know, looking at the TV, who's rooting for the Seahawks and who's cheering on that other team by looking at their clothes. When people look at you today, will they be able to easily tell that you belong to Christ? Heavenly Father, we confess that it's easy to get, to give in to sin, especially some sins. We've all got some sin that, that dogs us, and we struggle. Maybe we like it too much. Maybe we've given ourselves too much to it in the past, and so we struggle with that. But Father, we want to be known as Christians. We want to be seen as Christians. We want to wear the jersey of godliness. Help us to do that today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.